Hello everyone. Today we're going to talk about a topic that's been requested by a lot of you all, which is trauma. Um, we want to talk about trauma because it's actually come to public awareness a lot more recently. There's been a lot of chaos and upheaval in the world recently with uh, a global pandemic, with police violence, with an uptick in violence in general, and I think especially it's come into the public consciousness with the Me Too movement, so a lot more acknowledgement of the kinds of experiences that uh, that people, in particular women, go through um, that, you, you know, there might have been more shame and stigma attached to and people are, are willing to talk more openly about this now. So today we want to talk about what trauma is, various kinds of trauma, the kind of cognitive models of trauma, so what what trauma can, how it can kind of affect our, our thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. We're going to talk about PTSD as well, and we are so lucky to be joined by a good friend of both of ours, Dr. Caitlin Fang, who is, she was our lab mate at Duke, now she's in private practice. She has both um, experience with a personal relationship that involves um, a history of, of her, her, her boyfriend had a history of trauma, and um, she, she treats trauma patients and uses CBT approaches, so we are really excited to speak with her. Um, but for now, just kind of go into broadly what trauma is, and it's a generally negative reactions from a single stressful event or multiple events that happened over time. These events can include physical assault, rape, stalking, domestic violence, neglect, emotional abuse, disasters, accidents, or even historical traumas. So um, 9-11 had sort of the effect of traumatizing a lot of people of that generation. And we know that most people um, who, they might have traumatic symptoms, and that makes sense because going through such a terrible event is going to throw the body into a stress mode, and it's going to be incredibly distressing. And so, you know, people who experience a traumatic event are probably going to have some trauma symptoms. Most people recover over time, but sometimes those symptoms persist. So it's actually that 60% of people will experience a traumatic event over their lifetime. About 25% will experience multiple. Only about 10 to 18% of that population will go on to have PTSD. So, um, so Kibi, can you kind of go into a little bit more detail this concept of trauma? Yeah, definitely. I um, I love I love working with trauma. This is something that's um, a really um, near and dear topic to my heart because I've, I've been learning a lot of ways to treat trauma and also to treat people with a trauma-focused lens. I'll kind of describe what that means. But the way we understand it through a trauma-focused lens is we think of trauma as experiencing a distressing event, something that is super stressful, that it overwhelms someone's capacity to cope with it in the moment. It could be something life-threatening, like with some of you, what you just mentioned, like accidents or natural disasters, things like that. Or it could be some other kind of um, emotional or psychological abuse. Um, so in in those scenarios, when you have such a stressful event, emotions go, go up. We go into a survival mode. And a lot of people in those situations will have a fight, flight, or freeze response. So that's basically when your sympathetic nervous system is like going so haywire because it's so stressful that you basically go into a survival mode where you either fight, which is like 
aggression, anger, and fight your way to protect yourself, um, flight, like run away or avoid, or freeze, kind of like a deer in the headlights um, response. The freeze is actually really an interesting response because I don't, a lot of people don't talk about it, but especially in those uh, really stressful scenarios, people freeze, which might look like submitting, might look like not doing anything during a sexual assault or, you know, just unable to make a decision. And a lot of people feel a lot of shame about that because they're like, wait, something so stressful, something so horrible happened to me. Why did I just do nothing? But that's, that's actually a survival response. That's how, um, this, this is how our bodies are able to figure out how to like really survive in the moment, you know, just run away, fight or submit to minimize the danger. What it looks like is even though the people have those responses in that moment, they might have those like versions of those responses even after when something um, brings up that memory. So if someone was in a car accident and they had a like freeze response, every time they might hear a car horn or something like that, they might freeze a little bit or they might avoid cars or they might get irritable or angry with their partner in a car. So that is just overall a trauma response. And if you look at it from, if you look at mental health through a trauma-informed lens, things that look like other kind of disorders could be based in trauma, right? People who have depression, people who have anxiety around like, let's say cars or something like that. Um, complex trauma can also look like having diff difficulties with interpersonal relationships or um, negative feelings about themselves or low self-esteem. So trauma can really have these different effects on your life even afterwards even after the event itself. Sometimes trauma responses can also look like re-experiencing the trauma in many ways, like re-experiencing their, in their current life even after it happened. So that could be like intrusive thoughts and memories, um, you know, just like it pops up in your mind um, unexpectedly or dreams, but also it could look like reenacting that trauma in some way, especially sometimes this happens when someone has experienced some kind of uh, like relationship trauma, like, um, sexual assault or an abusive relationship, they might tend to reenact those the same traumas with getting into other abusive relationships or being re-victimized. So it's it's like this memory is playing out. And uh, I, I really love how my trauma teacher, Dr. Nogos Ruvel, told me, she says that if you go, are in a, such a stressful scenario and you go into fight, flight, or freeze response, you're blocking out a lot of experience of that stressful event kind of to survive right you might block out memories of it or you might block out your actual thoughts and reactions to it um and so basically that that memory hasn't been digested you know like if you think of something really stressful in your past and think oh god i was so angry at that person that was so unfair i you know or you know really grieving that loss of something like that if you if you go into a fight flight freeze response, you're kind of blocking out a lot of those natural ways of processing that memory, and so it could get kind of stuck. It could get kind of undigested. That's I, I just like that that description of of trauma. So it's like undigested experience in your past. I think that's a great illustration of how this process can kind of lead to PTSD symptoms that can be really destructive later in life. But it's actually a process that it really makes sense when it's happening and it's really important and adaptive when it's happening because the reality is, is if something is extremely threatening to your safety, um, you know, physically or emotionally, um, fight, flight, or freeze makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you have to, your body kind of has to go into some sort of protective mode. It's just that 
down the line, the results of that protective mode will still have consequences. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting with the public conversation now, like in the Me Too movement, as you mentioned, and um, awareness of police violence and, you know, um, racism, is that we're kind of opening up the dialogue to... Um, I'm going to re-say that I hate the word dialogue. We're, we're opening up awareness to that there's different kinds of trauma, mm-hmm. right? There's like individual level trauma, like betrayal trauma, which is like it could be a rape or it could be, you know, um, abandonment from a caregiver, right? But there's also system-wide levels of trauma. There's, you know, in- institutional trauma. Um, there is a moral injury, like people who go into the army with a, with a, like, this uh, belief in a moral code and they feel betrayed by it because they mm-hmm. have to do things that are against that code. Um, and there's also inter- intergenerational trauma, which is really interesting. People who, for example, um, survivors of the Holocaust may pass down actually symptoms of trauma to even generations, uh, their, their kin that didn't even experience the trauma. Um, and also racism. That's a, that's a form of institutional mm-hmm. trauma. But now we're really understanding that there's all different types of trauma that can play out in one's, um, in one's current life. And it's just really helpful to know, to see this from a, from a trauma-informed lens if a loved one is struggling with this. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll go into the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Trauma responses, I mean, just like anything else, is on a spectrum. So if someone doesn't meet PTSD diagnostic criteria, it doesn't mean that they weren't profoundly affected and profoundly um, still in pain. Um, but this is, this is a criteria for PTSD specifically. So essentially, it's looking for four sort of subsets of behavior. And one is this idea of intrusion. So this trauma is still kind of intruding on the person in some way. This other subset of behaviors is avoidance. So the person is acting in a way to keep avoiding this experience in in a way that might actually be damaging to their their broader life. The third is cognition and mood. So how is this actually affecting the person's thoughts, feelings? And the fourth is this arousal and reactivity. So this is almost a a physical manifestation, like startle startle response or sleep. Um, but I'll, I'll go through these more broadly. So these intrusion symptoms can look like flashbacks, nightmares. When these triggers come, just having this really intense distress or uh, physical reactivity afterwards, or just this kind of unwanted distressing recollections of the event. So a lot of memories of kind of mentally going back to that traumatic event. The avoidance symptoms look like, you know, they could be avoiding anything that reminds them of the trauma. So they they could be avoiding thoughts of the trauma. They could be avoiding feelings that they had during that trauma. So doing anything to avoid feeling scared or, um, you know, helpless. Another thing that can happen is that they can avoid kind of external reminders. So people, places, activities, objects, anything that reminds them of the traumatic experience. So they refuse to go within a certain radius of the location. They won't see people who may have been involved in the in the traumatic experience, but that could be like, you know, a friend who, who went through this with them. Um, persistent and distorted negative beliefs and expectations about oneself or the world. So this is 
I think this is one of the most interesting parts of PTSD. So I read a conceptualization of what happens when somebody goes through trauma once, and it, it basically said that we go through life not necessarily consciously thinking this, but there's a sense in which we believe that we have this divine protection. So we might be anxious about things, but there's a sense in which we are ultimately protected. You know, we, we see this especially like in, in teenagers who think they're like immortal, <laughs> but we kind of carry that shield with us all the time. And it allows us to move through the world, even given how scary it is and given how full of dangers it is. And what happens when someone is traumatized is that that shield is taken away. So this idea of this divine protection is gone. And it makes it really, really scary to suddenly be confronted with the world without any armor. And one way this can show up is called the just world hypothesis, which is that another belief we have is that overall the world is not a bad place. Good things happen to good people. I'm a good person, so things will work out okay for me. And one of the things that happens when we go through trauma is that this kind of just world hypothesis can can split in two ways. And the first is, well, if bad things happen to bad people, I must be a bad person. And this can lead to to one of the symptoms of PTSD, which is persistent distorted blame of yourself to, to feelings of shame. So you're kind of, you're, bearing the responsibility of this trauma because if you were a good person this wouldn't have happened to you right I, I do think this is a really interesting point, um, especially when you talk about um, sexual assault or um, mm. other kinds of betrayal trauma like that because there's also sometimes systems to keep that just world hypothesis in place right if if uh, someone experiences sexual assault in a workplace or whatever and they think oh it's my fault it must be something that i did if i was stronger i would prevent it and um and thoughts like that which kind of takes on the guilt takes on the shame of of the of the uh, assault there might also be systems of keeping that maintaining that right like keeping that person quiet a lot of silencing and uh, not speaking and blaming the victim are different Mm -hmm. mechanisms that a system would kind of maintain that trauma but also like contain it into that person so um, those kind of systems like perpetuate the trauma yeah so I I think another important function that 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 belief can serve is it's it's a little bit controllable you know I mean if you can sort of if you can minimize the the chaos to okay this was because of me this is something i did then you can maintain the belief in the world you know the rest of the world um and so that can be really powerful and then as kibby said it's also powerful for other people because then they can shirk responsibility Mm -hmm. Um, the the system Mm -hmm. can shirk responsibility and, and lay it all on this one person the second manifestation of the just world hypothesis is is the opposite that well good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Well, I guess that's not true because I'm a good person and a bad thing happened to me. And so this means that the world is a threatening place and there's no source of safety. There's nothing I can trust. So so this can, you know, this can also play into these kind of cognitive and mood symptoms. And, and these symptoms are the inability to recall key features, persistent and distorted negative beliefs and expectations about oneself or the world. So you can see that just world hypothesis coming in there. Persistent distorted blame of oneself or others. Persistent negative trauma-related emotions. You also might see a really diminished interest in activities that were once fulfilling and enjoyable. 
Um, they might be feeling really alienated from others. I mean, if, if you think about this extreme sort of mental shift that's involved with the trauma, it can make them feel like there's nobody that can understand them. Nobody's been through a similar situation. It can feel extremely lonely. Um, and then the last one is sort of a, a diminished or sort of constricted affect. So for the inability to experience positive emotions. So you can see how this is such a really important topic for um, relationships, right? Because trauma can affect all domains in your life, like relationships, work, love, <laughs> just being able to sit with your own emotions. There's so much that it can affect that if you have a loved one, if you if you are the partner or a sibling or a parent of someone who has trauma, it could be really challenging because that person is you know, reacting to something that happened in the past, but they're they're reacting um, in a way that's like mini fight, flight, or freeze response. Not, not even mini, sometimes full blown. And it's really hard to know what to do as someone who is a loved one. It could be it, like any other disorder. It could feel really helpless and frustrating and scary sometimes. The last sort of bucket of symptoms is um, this arousal and reactivity. So this is when irritable or aggressive behavior might come in, um, impulsivity, reckless behavior, this could look like hypervigilance, so kind of always being on guard for another event. It could be an exaggerated startle response. So someone has a really big reaction to you know being tapped on the shoulder or to hearing a loud noise. It could also look like problems in concentration or sleep disturbance. Um, so it's it's overall it's kind of the, the body is sort of both keeping the person in this trauma and trying to avoid it at all costs. So it's just sort of the dual phenomenon. Okay, so uh, we wanted to give this sort of general overview and background of trauma, but we are really excited now to introduce Dr. Caitlin Fang. We will call her Caitlin because she is our very good friend. Um, and again, she has both personal experience of being in a relationship with someone who experienced deep, deep trauma. And so she can kind of speak to how difficult it is to be in that kind of partnership and also kind of how she's able to, she's able to help him or show up for him and how maybe she needs to show up for herself and consider her own needs and just sort of the interplay between, between those ideas. Um, and she also is an expert in, in treating trauma with cognitive behavioral therapy. So we'll talk about what it looks like to go through treatment and what kinds of things can actually help someone who's gone through trauma. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so I, I, I introduced you as uh, the expert you are in treating trauma and as someone who is in a relationship with someone who has a, a strong background of trauma and kind of talked about how that, how, like, we kind of want to know, like, how you're able to show up for him and how that influences the dynamic of you guys and also kind of how you need to take care of yourself and consider yourself in that relationship. So just broadly, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what it's like to be in that in that relationship. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> I am used to treating trauma. And in that role, it is like super clear, right? Like people come in and they want help and they're like, paying me to help them. And so like, I know what to do. And I have like a protocol or like multiple protocols and we go through it and they get better and it's awesome. And like, I don't know, having a loved one is just so different, right? There's nothing, there's like such a sense of helplessness because 
there isn't a clear thing that you can do to help and there are experiences that you can like understand suffering and you can understand pain and have gone through painful things but it's just like I don't know what it's like to go through some of the things that he's been through and that my mom has been through and my friends have been through like it just feels I don't know. It's hard. I think there's like a lot of, um, helplessness and a lot of feeling like wanting to do more and not really knowing what to do as a loved one versus therapist. And I'm sure for people who don't have a therapy background, there are also unique challenges, but like, it's really different to see it from this side than in a therapy room. What can you give us an example of, you know, what, how it shows up in your relationship? Like how has it affected you guys? And yeah, totally. So, I mean, like, as you might imagine, anyone who has PTSD or struggles with trauma can look very different. And so my experience is likely really different from your experience with loved ones or the experience of the loved ones themselves. But for me, I think, the most striking thing has been like witnessing flashbacks and what it's like to go from like having a night where you're watching the bachelor or you're watching like some stupid TV show. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere in my mind, like he is somewhere else Mm -hmm. and he is scared and he is in a state that like is just so disconnected from reality or what's happening in this moment. And is just somewhere completely different. And to know like, you know, not to sound condescending, but it's almost like interacting with like a spooked horse Mm. or like a scared animal where it's like my natural impulse would be to like comfort and to come closer and to hug the person. And yet if you're in this space where you're like threatened for your life in your mind, Mm. like someone coming and hugging you is actually terrifying. And so I think like the first few times it was just like trying to be soothing and trying to find any words that brings a person back to reality or keeps them grounded and just like repeating over and over again, like I am here and you are safe and you are loved and just feeling like I have no idea if this is making a difference, if he can hear me, if like anything is happening. And so it was like, honestly, I just, I have heard about it from patients. I've talked to families and I've talked to them, but like actually seeing it happen and being like, Oh, like you are totally gone from this situation was so different than anything else I've experienced. It just felt really hard to navigate without invalidating his experience. And also like hard to know at what point is it like, enough like at what point can I like go do work or go work Mm -hmm. out and like leave him in this state which felt like so crappy right and yet when it happens like every week or sometimes like daily it's like how do you balance the caregiver role without being condescending with like living your own life and it's just like super tricky and then there are some months where like it is totally fine and there is nothing triggering. And so it just functions and you can almost forget about it. I mean, you can't avoid triggers, but like knowing once it happens, like how do I not fragilize this person? How much do I intervene? And how much do I like, like it really does. It feels cruel to leave someone who is like (laughs) actively having a flashback and be like, peace out. Got to go see my friend now. And so it's like, huh, what do we do here? 
It's like it's it's interesting because it, you know I've been reading a lot more about people replaying a lot or reenacting a lot of um, abusive or traumatic experiences in relationships, and sometimes it could feel like the loved one um, can almost feel like they're afraid of being a perpetrator. Like right? they're afraid of like they're afraid of harming that person, and at the same time, that person's sometimes like aggressive and harmful to them. So it could be really complex, right? It could be tricky. I don't totally. know if you I, I don't know if you experienced that, but I was just throwing that out there. Yeah, I think it is super tricky because like so much of healing from trauma is about having like agency and control back and being able to talk about it on your own terms and to share what you are able to share, what you're willing to share. And yet for me, like not knowing what happened is like pretty stressful because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know, like what it is you're holding. It's hard to not share that with somebody. He couldn't when, remember. Like, he just didn't want to share it with you at the time. Didn't want to share it. Got it. And mm-hmm. I think like, honestly, a lot of people just like, don't want to talk about it. Don't want to think about it. Don't want to like put it on the other person, which for me is actually way more stressful because mm. like I've heard a lot of bad stuff and I know like I can handle that, but the like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened and like how that might continue to impact. And I think, seeing ways in which like the sequelae of trauma impact our relationship and just like in general with other folks in my life who have gone through trauma, it does shape the way that you think about intimacy and control and Mm -hmm. power and trust and all these things. And so sometimes it will come up and it'll be like an anger outburst and in like therapist hat, I get that. And I know that's part of trauma and I know that's not intentional and it's not like wanting to do that. And yet the experience is still real. So it feels like a really weird, like tightrope where it's like, how do I validate that? Like, it is not your fault that sometimes you get really angry and sometimes you get really scared and sometimes you need to control things that is not your fault. And yet like these behaviors are not okay. And like how to Mm -hmm. do that without, invalidating the trauma or like Mm -hmm. feeling blamey it feels like a really tricky line where like there are some things that like it is just not okay to say to someone I can understand why that happened and I can understand why this conversation was triggering and also like how do I maintain limits around like yes and like you can't actually get up and walk out when I'm sad Mm -hmm. even if that is really stressful for you like I need you there. So how to talk about like the behavior and consequences in a way that's not judgmental or shaming is just like very anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. It feels really stressful because I do have like really deep compassion, not just for him, but for like all folks who have gone through something that was not their fault. And like, honestly, all of the consequences of it also not their fault. And yet like we have to be responsible for our behavior. Mm hmm. So meaning the the person who has trauma, he needs mm-hmm. to take some sort of responsibility for some for for even their responses. Yeah, that's hard. Mm-hmm. That is really hard because it could feel like out of their control. So they're like, I didn't mean yeah. to yell at you. At the same time, it's like, but you did, and it was hurtful, right? Trauma is something that can manifest so differently. I mean, going through a car crash is going to look super different for you know the person with trauma symptoms and their spouse or family. Um, your your partner, I think, had prolonged childhood trauma, right? So it was repeated and prolonged and um, probably, like, deeply affected 
his attachment systems. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's going to look very specifically different from all sorts of other traumas. Can you, can you speak to how, how you feel that's sort of affected his ability to be intimate or how that, how that shows up for your relationship? Totally. This is not global, but typically if you're in childhood, the like fight, flight, freeze, you can't really fight because everyone's bigger than you Mm. and you can't really run away because you rely on those people for like sustenance and shelter. And so freeze is really common. And I think that's the thing that I see most as like how it's impacting current functioning is like, that is such a strong response when things get really flooded. It's just like deer in headlights, like can't do any, like need to like leave the house, leave the room, take a break from things. And like the ability to have difficult conversations in those moments is like pretty non-existent, which as you might imagine was super frustrating for me in the beginning when like, I didn't know any of this had happened. So I was like, why are you just like walking out of the room every time I'm upset? Like I get it. I don't like conflict either, but like it is to a degree that is just like seems ridiculous. And then I was like, Oh, you have a trauma history. Like that makes so much more sense. And it doesn't make the behavior. It makes it less frustrating. It's still frustrating in the moment when it's like, I want to talk about this thing. Stop walking away from me. And yet he has been willing to flex and like, I will still walk away, but I'll be like, Hey, I need a minute. And then actually come back. And I get to be like, oh, this is something I can understand. Like, I need to be able to time out and then to come back to things. Um, But I think it impacts, like, people in such different ways. Like, I have friends where intimacy is really impaired. Like, for folks who have struggled with sexual assault, they're like, I know that my current partner is not like that, and yet, like, sometimes when they touch me, it's just, like, terrifying. And so I think you're right that like the type of trauma and when it happened can impact what it looks like. And also I've seen people who've had like very similar traumas at very similar life points who have totally different presentations. Mm -hmm. So it's just like when something totally abnormal happens, there is not like one typical reaction. It can look very different if even like with the same event. Hmm. I'm curious, either from your clinical expertise or your experiences, like, what kind of tips can you give someone who has a loved one with, tra- with, with trauma? Like, this kind of sense of helplessness and kind of like walking on eggshells, not knowing what to do to help? Like, what what can you give some people in that position? Yeah, it's such a good question. So I think, like, the first thing would be patience. <laughs> I think, like, honestly, if there were just one thing, it is to have so much patience because like I said like part of trauma is that you felt a lack of control when you felt like you didn't have agency you couldn't get away and so so much of like how to heal requires like people do things on their own time like you can't tell someone you must get treatment now it's like they have to be ready to deal with this stuff and in a place where they can deal with this stuff and so like it can be really hard to see someone who is struggling and to want to like press them and be like, what is the matter? Tell me. And yet like that can actually be pretty harmful if the person isn't able in that moment to talk about it or to communicate like what exactly is happening. And so it requires lots of patience 
and education. Like there are awesome like cartoon videos that the VA put out on like, what is PTSD and what are treatment options that are really simple to understand. But often when I talk to patients or loved ones about like, Hey guys, here's what PTSD is. They're like, Oh, oh." and it just, you see that moment of like validation that they're not just like crazy, that this is a thing that many people have experienced that is unique to the person, but also is really common. And so it can kind of destigmatize. And I think if loved ones know like, Oh, avoidance is part of this. And like flashbacks are part of it. And it doesn't mean the person is insane or they're psychotic or there is something that will never be fixed. It really is like understanding that this is a set of symptoms and it's treatable. Um, And like if people are receptive, being able to talk through the different treatment options, I think like being able to set limits and take care of yourself and like learn to navigate that line and have conversations in moments when like you aren't having a flashback. That's not a good moment to like talk about what do I do in this moment? But in quiet moments, which is really scary for the loved one and for the person when things are going well, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to talk about anything bad. And yet like that is the moment to be like, Hey, what can I do? Like, how do I support you? Do you want to talk about therapy? Do you want to talk about what happened? Do you want me to like sit quietly? Do you want me to leave you alone? But it's so individual that I don't think there is like one thing that helps. Like I have one patient who, if I show them pictures of my dog, wherever they are, whatever they're feeling that snaps them back and like can get them to laugh and can get them back in the present. But like other people, that won't do anything for them. And so like really, truly being, as DBT would say, like willing to go where angels fear to tread, being willing to talk about it to the extent that the loved one is willing to talk about it and just see like, for you, what do you find helpful? How can I be supportive? And like in moments when I do want to go see a friend or want to work out, like how can I communicate that in a way that doesn't feel like totally invalidating Cause I think for like you or me, if we were sobbing and overwhelmed and like had the worst day ever and our partner was like, okay, bye. We'd be like, what the heck, dude? Like it would just be so, so dismissive and invalidating. And yet when that's like chronic and happening really frequently, you do actually have to figure out like, how do I live my life? And I think the other thing is like, how to not walk on eggshells. Like the reality is flashbacks suck. I have not like had the full experience. So I don't know the extent to which they suck, but seeing them, they suck. They're very painful and very scary. And so like, obviously you don't want to like trigger that. And yet like your job is to be a partner is to be loving, is to build a partnership. It is not to like try to create this bubble where they're never exposed to anything that's actually like counterproductive to them healing. If they are just in an environment where nothing stressful ever happens and you hide all your emotions and you're never upset with them, like the point is that now they're in a safe context and they have to learn like somebody being mad at you doesn't mean that something terrible is going to happen. It can mean like you talk about it and you work through it 
And it can actually be really healing in moments when something small happens that's like, whoops, trauma is like right here in my face and you're able to do something different so that it doesn't end the same way. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate you mentioning that it's it's not really the job of the partner to protect them and create a bubble and shelter them from these triggers, which which might be the natural tendency to like make it easier. Oh, nothing that reminds them of whatever, you know, we don't even talk about it. We don't, you know, but that could really restrict your life. And I just want to ask you, how, how can a loved one, how can someone from the outside spot someone who's either in a flashback or dissociating? Like, what, what does that look like? If you don't know what that is, like, what, what does it look like from the outside? Totally. So for some context, I don't know how much you guys have already talked about, but like dissociation can look very different for very different people. For some people, it's just like zoning out. So it might look like someone is daydreaming, like they have like glassy eyes are not fully present. But if you were like to snap in front of their face, they'd be like, huh, what? What's happening? Mm -hmm. It's like truly is just the spacey. It's part of the freeze response where it's like, something is too much. So I'm going to turn off. It's like Mm -hmm. a shutdown response for some people. It's like dissociative identity disorder where like whole parts of you are separated off and that can look really different. But in general, if people are dissociating, like it will just look like they're spaced out. Mm -hmm. Like they are just not responsive, not moving, not reacting. Um, For flashbacks, it can look really different for different people, but basically it is a really intense memory. It is as though you are like back in whatever was happening. And so for folks I have seen, it usually looks like terror. Like Mm -hmm. it looks like somebody like curled in terror preparing for something bad to happen because in their mind, like truly they're back reliving that experience. It is not like when we remember something bad that happened, it's like, the sensations, the smells, the sights, like all of that is happening now in the moment. And so honestly, it mostly just looks like somebody who is like freaking petrified. Cool. Thank you. That's helpful. I was going to ask if, do you have any advice for if, if you're the friend of someone who's just gone through a trauma, how to kind of show up for them, help them through that? Totally. So this is a tricky one because for many, many people, most of us actually will experience a trauma at some point in our life. And for a lot of people, initially, that looks exactly like PTSD because that's actually our body and brain doing exactly what it's supposed to do, right? Like if I get into a car crash, my brain and body are like, cars are now dangerous, man. And even though logically we're like, oh, I've been in a car a million times and this has never happened. It was such a bad event that our body is like, protect yourself. And so for a week, every single time you like look at your car, you get in your car, you'll have this surge of panic because your body's like, no, 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 no. The last time we did this, something really bad happened. We shouldn't be doing this. This is dangerous. And for some people, that response like lasts a week, lasts a couple weeks, and then it naturally goes away. For other people, it maintains. And like part of that is avoidance. If like every time I saw my car, I was like, never mind, I'll just walk. And I never relearned like, oh, I can get in my car without it getting hit. Then like, of course, that's going to stay. And I'm going to keep being afraid of my car until I have more experiences that say like, no, actually, it's safe again. And so when you just experience a trauma, like, honestly, getting PTSD treatment is usually premature. Because like, 
all of the symptoms are actually totally normal reactions to an abnormal event. Mm -hmm. And so I think like in the phases right after your job is to just be the good friend you are. That is to be there when they want to be there to ask like, do you want to be distracted? Do you want to talk about it? Do you want me to just sit here quietly? Do you want to hug? Like being able to just, you know, be the human you are, nothing really changes. I think it's when you start to notice like, oh, it's been two months, it's been three months and you're still not getting in your car or you're still like, every time there is a noise, jumping and having startle responses, you're having nightmares about it. That's the point when like, to the extent that you are willing, you could start to talk about like, hey, I heard this podcast that talked about PTSD and here are some of the symptoms. Like, does that fit with your experience? Do you want to like talk more about it? Do you want to hear about treatments that work? And like empowering them because the saddest thing with my trauma folks is they usually come to me after like 30 or 40 years of suffering Mm -hmm. daily with like really extreme trauma symptoms. And honestly, in like 15 weeks, they're usually better and they're like oh my god I had no idea that this was possible and so like honestly thank you for doing this because truly just having people know like you're not crazy this is what it is and like there are treatments and they work really well yeah that's a really good segue can you tell us a little bit more about um evidence-based treatments for PTSD and trauma and maybe even skills like grounding or anything that would be helpful Yeah, man. Big question. So I have some biases in just like how I was trained. So the two treatments that I know really well that are strongly recommended by APA and the VA and the DOD are prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. They're pretty equivalent in terms of effectiveness, but look very different. And so it like truly is about finding someone who is trained and also like which pathway you are more comfortable doing. So prolonged exposure is based on emotional processing theory. And basically it is like a 10 to 15 session treatment that works to reactivate memories and block avoidance. And so it's based on the idea that we have these like fear systems and they're adaptive, right? They're a way of avoiding danger. And yet they can become problematic when the fear is not actually based in reality. So if we start to fear like our car or for some people, the grocery store, or for some people, like, I don't know, the sound of chewing, there are things that aren't actually dangerous. And yet because they were part of the trauma have been like paired in that person's mind to feel scary, even though they're actually safe. And also the memory of the trauma itself, memories are not inherently scary. The event was, that was dangerous, and that is worth feeling lots of fear over. But a lot of people feel immense fear just like thinking about it. Or when they have nightmares, it just feels like it is happening now, even though they're physically safe. And so the whole principle behind this is like, how do we get people to stop avoiding that, avoiding the places, avoiding the memories, avoiding the emotions, and get them to actually experience and engage in it in a really controlled way. And so it involves imaginal exposure, which is basically you figure out which trauma you're targeting, and then you go through the memory, 
and you go through it over and over and over again in a lot of detail. And as you might imagine, for most people who've experienced trauma, that sounds so bad. (laughs) And it's just like a really painful thing that goes against our nature. Like when something bad happens, we don't want to think about it. And yet the reality is like, it's already there. It is popping up in ways. It's popping up in like intrusive memories or in nightmares or in flashbacks. Like you are already living with that memory. And so it is a way to face it in a controlled way so that you're intentionally bringing it up and habituation happens. So anything we do over and over and over again, like learning to ride a bike or learning to drive a car, the first few times you do it, you're like, we're definitely going to die. This is terrifying. And now you don't even think about it. It's just second nature. The same thing happens with memories. If we just say them over and over and over again, we start to learn like that is not now because I am saying these words almost like if you say like milk over and over again, it starts to not seem real. The same principle applies. You say the memory over and over and over again to the point where talking about it and like honestly like reliving the memory and reliving the details of it and saying that out loud no longer feels as upsetting. And paradoxically, the second that we like take control over it and do that, the memory no longer haunts us. It's like a bully. If you ignore it or if you just like constantly are exposed to it, then eventually it just stops bullying you because you have processed it, you've dealt with it. So it has imaginal exposure, which works like that. You do it together in session, you repeat it over and over again, they record it and listen to it at home um, until that memory no longer feels as powerful and doesn't have like ownership over you. You feel free from it. And then you do in vivo exposure where you go out in the world and the things that you want to be doing but feel terrifying, you slowly work your way up to doing them. So I might go and sit in my car without driving for 30 minutes. I might just sit there and notice like terror goes up, but the thing is nothing bad happened. I didn't actually get hit by another car. And so my body starts to learn what my mind rationally knew, like sitting in a car without moving is not actually dangerous. But my body was like, no, it is. It feels really scary. It feels really scary. And so you have to approach and actually learn like, oh, I survived. And for some people in the moment, emotion goes down. Like if I sit there for 30 minutes, at some point I'm just bored. And so I'm not scared anymore. For some people, it's scary the whole time, but they still learn like, I survived that and nothing bad happens. And if you do that over and over and over again, and you build your way up to the thing that's really scary, like driving down the highway where the accident happened, you start to regain your life back. You have a sense that like, I am not controlled by trauma. I can do things even if they are scary and they actually do become less scary over time. Before I move on to CPT, things to know, basically prolonged exposure works. And once it works, the gains tend to be maintained over time. This is also true for CPT, but there have been so, so many studies. In general, the range is 41 to 95% after they go through one round of prolonged exposure, no longer meet criteria for PTSD. It is very effective. The average is around 65. So more than half of people who do this like 15-week treatment, 10 to 15-week treatment, do get better and they stay better. Um, so there is hope. So cognitive processing therapy is based in a social cognitive theory that basically looks at how people 
respond to trauma on the cognitive level. So how people make sense of what happened when they're trying to regain a sense of safety and control. And what we know about trauma is it tends to impact thoughts in certain ways. So people tend to see distortions around like intimacy, around power, around trust, around control, um, around self-esteem. And so we see these patterns where people are trying to make sense of what happened and our brains like order. We have schemas, we have ways of organizing the world. And when trauma happens, it's usually so out of line with the way that we viewed the world, with our belief, like in general, we're safe in general, people are good. And so when trauma happens in order to make sense of it, we either need to adjust our belief and say like, Oh, the world is not good. The world is bad and scary. Or we have to somehow twist it so that whatever trauma was like, well, I messed up. I did something bad. And so this bad thing happens. The world is good. And as long as I don't do this bad thing, I'm safe. And so like, there are lots of different ways that that can come out. But in general, it tends to warp our views around like, how safe the world is and what it means to trust other people, what it means to be close to other people. And so cognitive processing therapy, there's a purely cognitive version in which you don't have to talk about the trauma, like really at all. You don't have to do a narrative. You don't have to do exposure to it. So it's pretty helpful for folks who have like chronic trauma or like can't remember the trauma or there's some reason like exposure is just so, so unpleasant to them that they're like, nah, I'm not doing that. And so it helps you to learn tools on how to think of your thoughts as a scientist would. It is not to prove your thoughts wrong. It is to look at like, what is the evidence for this? If I have the belief that all men are going to use me, like, let's look at it. Let's look at what are the facts that support that, that are like true. Like, oh yeah, this person was a man and did use me. This other person was a man and also used me. That is evidence to support the belief. Like, is there any counter evidence? Trying to find a way to make your thoughts less exaggerated, less black and white, how to see the nuance in your thoughts and to learn how to notice when trauma thoughts that are keeping you stuck that are help they're like keeping you from being able to connect to people that are important in your life. How can I notice those thoughts and then find ways to think differently about what happened, about the world that feels more in line with reality and are actually more effective. And so in all cognitive behavioral therapies, what we know when you change one, you can change the other. So if I am really depressed and I go out and I do things that make me happier, then over time, I start to think happier thoughts. It is a natural byproduct and the same happens in reverse. If I go from thinking all men are terrifying, they're just going to use me, they're going to hurt me to thinking like, some men are actually trustworthy. Then that really changes my behavior. All of a sudden, I am not totally closed off to like one type of person or one type of experience. I am able to actually like, notice ways in which those thoughts are keeping me held back and instead act on my values versus these thoughts that keep us stuck in trauma. So again, it's a pretty short-term treatment. It's around 12 weeks as a standard version. You can also add in an exposure element where you write out a narrative of what happens that includes beliefs around like 
why did this happen? Like, do you blame yourself? Do you blame this person? Is it because chaos reigns and the world is unpredictable? Like, what is it that you think is the cause of it? And then after you go through treatment, you write another statement and you can just look at the differences in the way that you're thinking about like, well, it was all my fault because I was wearing that skirt to like, oh, it is more complicated than that. It is like more shades of gray rather than black and white. Yeah. So what? So those are these evidence-based treatments, which are awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe skills or things that people can do on their own? I don't say on their own, but, you know, just different kind of skills that people um, uh, with trauma can practice. Totally. So grounding would be really useful if you're struggling with dissociation or flashbacks. Anytime you're disconnected from reality, Grounding is like this ambiguous word. It basically means like how to get yourself back to the here and now. And there are lots and lots of different ways you can do that. Some are like extreme sensation. So you can do things like picking up an ice cube. And it's such an intense sensation that all of a sudden you're like, I'm back in reality because this really intense thing is happening. And so all of my attention is focused on that. It can also be things, weirdly enough, like standing on one foot because the amount of effort it takes to not fall over is enough to like bring you back to reality. There are things that are based in mindfulness, like looking around the room and seeing like, how many blue things can I count? What are the sounds that I hear? Some people really like mantras. So something like I am like here and now, or I am safe, or um, this is not then doesn't really matter. It's about finding what works for you. And so like truly anything that for you can ground you back to reality. It might be that you have, like, if you have a Fitbit, having something that buzzes to make you aware. So in the moment when it's happening, typically using things like intense sensation or mindfulness-based techniques can bring you back. It's also useful to just be aware of what are the triggers that lead to that because intervening earlier on is way easier than trying to bring yourself back when you're like full on dissociated or full on in the middle of a flashback. At that point, you just need more high intensity skills. So you might need to like step into an ice cold shower versus like taking a few deep breaths. If you can know, if you can start to feel the triggers like, oh, every time it gets cold, I am more vulnerable to having a flashback or every time I somebody is mad at me, I am more likely to have a flashback than when those things happen. Or it could just be an internal sensation. Like some people get auras for migraines. Same thing applies. Like some people can feel this like funny sensation. A lot of people describe it as sleepiness, like feeling like that zony feeling Mm -hmm. where things feel a little surreal or you just feel like all of a sudden drowsy. If you can recognize earlier on then you can use just like your average emotion regulation skills. You can do deep breathing. You can call a friend. You can go outside and go for a walk. You can do a lot of things, but truly like the further along it gets being able to recognize some people like truly can't even recognize that it's happening because your brain is just in a totally altered state. But the more you can practice it before it's happening. So like, practice going to the freezer and grabbing an ice cube the more like your body can do that and it's automatic the more likely it will be that you'll have access to it when you're actually in a state when you really need it 
Awesome. Kaylin, can you tell us about shitty treatments? Like what? Because I, I, I'm. We've talked about this before on our podcast, where people look for treatment, and it's so confusing. Like, what are they supposed to be looking for? And then what are? And then you know, you'll see all these therapists that are like, I do everything. Like, I do all these trauma treatments and all. And so, what? What should they be looking for, and what should they be avoiding? Yeah. So in general. Trauma is one of the hard ones where, like, there is some ability to do harm. Like, shitty Mm -hmm. therapy actually is potentially harmful because if you are bringing up lots of shit that people have been coping with in whatever way they've been coping with without some sort of way of resolving it or processing it or some, like, framework with which to deal with it, you just basically took away their coping mechanism, brought this terrible thing to the forefront of their mind, and then, like, left them. And so, like, if you are looking for trauma therapy, you can look through, like, the VA has excellent resources that describe the different treatments. APA has excellent resources. In general, prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy have, like, stellar, are strongly recommended by both. Um, I do think that there is a lot of variability in the amount of training trauma therapists get. So, like, they have different directories where you can look up people who have intensive training in these things. I would just ask, like, you're looking for people who, in general, can tell you, like, what to expect and, like, how many people have they treated? Like, do they follow a standard protocol or do they kind of wing it? Like, how do their patients tend to do? How long should it be? And in general, like, yes, there is variability, but standard courses really are about, like, three to five months and if it's like well this could take years and we'll feel it out like that is something that's not necessarily a deal breaker but it's a red flag you really want somebody who is trained in an empirically supported treatment there's Mm -hmm. also trauma focused cbt i don't know as much about it but that is also empirically supported but you don't want to go to like just a talk therapist without specific trauma training, even someone who is like stellarly trained in depression, the trauma treatments are like very specific. And so you want somebody who has a background in at least one empirically supported trauma treatment. Um, And I think like, honestly, that requires knowing a little bit about the options because a lot of people are trained in EMDR or trained in PE or trained in CPT, but not trained in all three. And so if you go to someone, they're not likely to be like, here are all the things unless they've gone through intensive training and multiple. They're usually like, here's what I can offer. So if you are able to and have the bandwidth to look into the different treatments and see like, I actually think this would be a really good fit for me. Then you can go to like VA websites and you can go to ABCT and find people who have experience with that treatment. Can you can you tell us what it looks like um, after your partner has gotten treatment? Like what are the, what are the changes that you've noticed and the benefits of of the treatment? Oh my goodness, it is huge. It is like pretty night and day, and also like confusing because it happened over a long period of time, and so. It just is like the ability to tolerate emotions is just so much higher. The ability to sit with difficult feelings and to not, there there still sometimes is a freeze response, but it's so much shorter and it's less like 
definitely less destructive interpersonally and for him it's more like and then like okay we can handle this we can do this Mm. and I think just a lot more self-compassion like there was so Mm. much shame and so much guilt about what had happened and being able to say like oh that actually wasn't my fault and to be able to see like the whole situation versus the narrow part that you're fixating on that's like if only I had just or if only this hadn't happened there's a lot more like this did happen and that's really sad and that like I wish that I could like go back and like comfort my child self and say like this isn't you and you're not bad and like I think that that makes a huge difference interpersonally to go from like the belief like I am bad to to like actually I'm an okay human has such a profound impact on like personal relationships as you might expect so it's been like awesome <laughs> selfishly great. for me but <laughs> definitely for <laughs> Caitlin that was just seriously terrific I know I learned a lot so thank you so so much for coming on thank you so much Caitlin and um, we're going to share a lot of the resources that Caitlin mentioned the um, American Psychological Association and Veterans Affairs uh, websites that you mentioned as well as we recommend the book Body Keeps a Score Brain Mind and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk um, and so we'll put that on their website just in case if you want to delve into these topics a little further for yourself okay we will see you next week thank you so much for listening by accessing this podcast i acknowledge that the hosts of this podcast make no warranty guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast the information opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk this podcast and any and all content or services available on or through this podcast are provided for general, non-commercial informational purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medical or any other professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment and should not be considered or used as a substitute for the independent professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment of a duly licensed and qualified healthcare provider. In case of a medical emergency, you should immediately call 911. The hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast, and information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval.